Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm your host, Faith McQuinn, and this is Epic Gods and Lies. Episode 5. Andy. Are you sure about this? I asked. Iris walked ahead of me and unlocked the door to her apartment. Do you have anywhere else to stay? I was already on the outs with my landlord, and I'm pretty sure skipping out on the rent in order to balance a beach ball on my nose hadn't earned me any favors. I could rustle something up. You know me. I always find something. Even thinking of my regular excuses added to my exhaustion. No. Well then. She pushed the door open. Her phone chirped, and she gestured me inside as she read her incoming text. Thanks. Iris's place was small, but tidy and unmistakably hers. Blackout curtains on all the windows a comfy couch dotted with pillows, a creaking bookcase overstuffed with books, DVDs, and CDs all lumped in together, a yoga mat and a UV lamp in one corner, a ceiling-high wooden shrine to Themia in the other. Most renters I knew bought the collapsible kind, but not Iris. She was a woman who valued commitment to her goddess, to justice, to this case. The couch should be comfortable enough, but it doesn't fold out. There's a sleeping bag in the cupboard next to the front door, she said, pulling the Marwal's photograph out of her pocket. She was still staring at it when I finished setting up my impromptu sleeping arrangement. Find anything? She didn't take her eyes off the picture. Andy, if someone you cared about died, wouldn't you want to know why? Sure, I blurted, taken a bit off guard. The people I cared about would fill out a pretty small list, if I was being painfully honest. But I knew who would be at the top. I would too, Iris said. That's what bugs me. Cleo's death was unusual at the very least, but her family insisted that they didn't need the rights. 
They didn't ask any questions, and they didn't want the death priests asking any either. What are you thinking? What was your experience with the Morwall family? I sat down on the couch, the sleeping bag crinkling around me. They were desperate. Like they'd tried everything else to get Pippa back, and I was their last resort. Iris moved closer. And they didn't believe her relationship with Estros was consensual? Mr. Marwall insisted his daughter wouldn't have abandoned her siblings. Said she knew her duty. That's how he put it? Were those his words exactly? Something cold and sharp prickled at the back of my neck. What are you getting at? She sat down next to me, holding out the Marwall's photo. I want you to think about this and think hard. What do you see in this picture? I've already seen it. I'm asking you to look at it like an investigator. It's not about you. It's about them. I took the photo from her, even though I already knew what I'd see. A portrait of the people I'd failed. Mr. and Mrs. Marwall, all cozy with their younger daughter. What was her name? Phoebe, that's right. I remembered it from that first frantic conversation when they'd hired me. One big loving family. Pippa, Theodore, Phoebe, Cameron, Lloyd. I frowned. What do you see? Iris asked. The Marwalls have four other kids, but only Pippa's sister is in the picture. I brought the picture closer. I'd barely glanced at it when I was first hired, and that was when I'd been in full hero mode, ready to rescue the damsel. Maybe Pippa and Phoebe were especially close. But with the benefit of hindsight, I noticed other details. The father, one hand on the girl's shoulder and the other wrapped around her waist. The odd angle of the mother's arm as it draped around her daughter's throat. The frozen look on Phoebe's face. My mouth went dry. I don't know what I'm looking at. I got a text from Amelia, Iris said quietly. She found the files of two more deceased girls whose families refused the rights. One girl was 18, the other 20, both outlanders. I noticed another detail. Neither parent wore accessories, but the daughter wore a chunky bracelet of amethyst and coral. It almost looked like a cuff. Come back, Pippa. Do it for your sister. Asphyxia suspected was logged on one of the files, but the death priest wasn't able to confirm. But they were the same age group, same background, same tax bracket even, like Pippa. Two more girls? I didn't want to connect the dots. The Marwalls wanted to save their daughter. For now, Iris replied. That's just what Amelia dug up in the last two hours. She's still looking. I thought of Etha at the Garden of Delight, worrying about keeping her fellow nymphs on the straight and narrow. Her failure with Sisera. She was going way too deep, getting herself mixed up in the old ways. Outlander girls. Asphyxiated. Every word felt like forcing a stone out of my throat. Are you suggesting the blood price? That they were sacrifices to Estros? If we were just dealing with Pippa, maybe. But Pippa was transmogrified to cover up the evidence, and the other girls weren't. If they were all for Estros, why change the pattern when the pattern was working?
and according to Tillamon, Estros wouldn't have given someone like Pippa the time of day if she hadn't been blackmailing him. Why would Pippa put herself in harm's way? She certainly wasn't benefiting off the regular perks of a god's favor. She didn't chase fame, or attention, or money. What if it was protection? Who better to protect you from a god than another god? No. I pushed myself to my feet. Everything about Iris's place suddenly felt too small. It was like every time I turned around, she was too close to me, and I was too close to losing control and behaving like a complete idiot. That's not what this is. Just because the Marwals are outlanders doesn't make them barbarians. I felt Iris's finger wrap around my arm, and I realized I was yelling. It's okay, she said. Just breathe. I shook off her grip. How am I supposed to be calm? You're telling me the Marwals wanted to offer up their daughter as a blood price. I'm just asking questions. My throat tightened. It was the answers I was afraid of. If the Marwals wanted to sacrifice their daughter, what does that make me? The disgraced demi-thug hired to terrorize her? I crumpled the photo in my fist. Come back to your sister, Pippa, because it's either you or her. Would Pippa have surrendered if I'd given her the photograph in time? So much for trying to be the good guy. You're not a thug. I'm not an investigator either. Then why are you here? Iris demanded. You could have ghosted the moment you found out Pippa was dead. Face it, Andy. You're here because you want justice for Pippa as much as I do. You were right the first time. I turned away from her. I didn't need Iris to feel sorry for me. Without Pippa, there's no reason to continue with this case. I took the Marwall's job because I needed the money. And I thought it'd be nice to play the hero. That's it. Now that that's off the table, I'm done. I'm out. Iris's voice echoed down the foyer as I made for the door. You can't be serious. I put my reputation on the line for you. The only reason you've got opposable thumbs again is because you're sworn to this case. Then unswear me. Take me back to Surf World. Or better yet, I'll do it myself. I was tired, right down to the dregs of me. I hadn't touched the ocean in two months. I was broke. I was homeless. I wasn't good for anything except jumping through hoops for sugar-addled tourists. I stumbled out the door before Iris could stop me. Iris. I slept badly. Half of me expected Andy to come back. The other half waited for the inevitable phone call telling me he'd fallen right back into trouble. And maybe a small remaining sliver of me kicked myself for not following him and dragging him back. My declaration at Surf World had spared him from the Sea Mother's immediate punishment, but it wouldn't protect him if he went out looking for mischief. And Themia's protection would only last until the end of the case. No call came, leaving me torn between relief and unease. Throughout our whole acquaintance, it seemed he'd taken pleasure in skating by on his mother's tolerance. I had to admire how he was now making an effort to be independent, but this first attempt wasn't going so well. 
he'd never really had to solve the worst of his problems. He'd always had his mother to pull him out. Or me. I had no idea what he'd do next. I gave up on sleep at around 5 a.m. and slouched into the kitchen to down half a pot of coffee. Caffeine, at least, had never abandoned me. Quite literally. After the scandal, I'd learned that the goddess of stimulants had once been spurned by Delanthos, having no real sway over natural morning persons, and had taken great pleasure in his humiliation. The coffee burned just enough of my exhaustion away to remind me of my latest discovery— the growing number of dead Outlander girls. The list was up to six, all within the last ten years. Amelia was just texting me names now. Names of Outlander girls between the ages of 17 and 23, whose well-off and successful families had turned down the death rites that would have probed further into why they'd all suddenly stopped breathing. Pippa Marwall fit the profile to a T, until she fled to the Temple of Wind and cut herself off from her family. The thought of Pippa's family members deciding to sacrifice her to secure the family's future made my skin crawl. But wasn't I being hypocritical? Two hundred years ago, my family might have done the same thing. Because that's just the life they knew. Outlanders came to Nexos from all over the world, hoping to find a better life, but success never happened right away. It took time to adapt to the Pantheon's way of life and secure a patron deity powerful enough to change their fortunes. Many Outlander families struggled in poverty for decades before finally managing to win one over. But if a god came to them in their time of need, offering security, compassion, and blessings— only to demand their price when the family was too deeply indebted to refuse? What happened then? What choice did they have? The Marwalls. They were at the top of my list, but with Andy M.I.A. and Pippa's death splashed across the headlines, I doubted they'd be cooperative. Perhaps I had to take this case back to the very start. There was no parking to be had at the Temple of Wind today. I eventually left my car on a side street and carved my way through the throngs of protesters and worshippers, all of them arguing with each other at the top of their lungs. Since being leaked to the press, Pippa's story had inflamed social media, and the tide of popular favor continued to swing back and forth. I shoved past women baying for Estros's blood, and I almost had to wield my blessed oak against a fanatical Estrian. By the time I made it to the front gates, I'd shed any desire to be diplomatic. I punched the intercom's button. I bring Themia's blessing. This is not a request. To my surprise, the high priestess herself came to let me in. I grew my oak into a spear to keep the rest of the crowd from spilling in behind me. Thank Estros you've come, she wheezed. She quickly led me through the temple to her office. The place was eerily quiet, except for the squawk of a single seagull that perched in the rafters above us. Mother Daphne seemed to have aged five years since I'd last seen her. She'd abandoned the harebells and half of her braids had unraveled, giving her the appearance of a frantic cloud. 
This is a disaster. We've had to cancel all public services thanks to those animals and the letters we've been getting. I had no idea the hatred that lived in people's hearts. A copy of the Nexos Chronicler from two days ago lay across her desk. The same edition Father Edwin had shaken in my face. People are frightened. The days of the blood price weren't so long ago. They should know better. The priestess collapsed under her seat cushion with a heavy thump. The gods of the Pantheon care about us. That's why they gave up the practice in the first place. Except I don't think all the gods have. I held up a hand to forestall Mother Daphne's retort. I think Pippa was in danger before she received Astros's favor. What? You're here about Pippa? What about our temple? What about Estros? Mother Daphne's voice rose with every question. I'll be more than willing to request aid from the Temple of Justice to help with the protesters, I said gently. The priestess was clearly under a lot of pressure. But Pippa Marwal is still in need of Themia's blessing. How is that just? To take the side of some insignificant chemistry student instead of a respected temple? Engineering student. It popped out automatically, like Andy's voice was directly in my head. I glanced at the newspaper headline. It reminded me of something. And she wasn't exactly insignificant. It's clear she was on at least one deity's bad side. Oh, yes, the big bad pantheon. Do you blame everything on the gods? The priestess demanded. What about her family? If you'd seen the security footage of their ridiculous displays when she first came here, you'd be singing an entirely different... Her voice trailed off in horror. Security footage? I got to my feet. You told me your temple's security camera was never working to begin with. She blustered. My blessed oak expanded into a staff. Let me guess... That particular security camera doesn't work, but it's not the only one, is it? Clever. My oak only detects direct lies. Maybe it's time I started asking more direct questions. Mother Daphne shot to her feet, but I was quicker. I lunged, and my oak shot out and struck her right in the chest. Before she could get to her feet, I leapt over the desk and drove my oak into the floor through the shoulder of her robe, pinning her to the ground. When did you install the broken security camera? She grit her teeth. I don't remember. The oak staff thrummed, rattling against the stone floor. Lie. You want to try that again? Mother Daphne hissed through her nose as she glanced at the blessed branch throbbing inches from her face. I did not kill Pippa Marwall. The staff quieted. Truth. But you know who did. Not entirely. Also truth, but not a full answer. I'm waiting, I said, leaning down. Get used to disappointment, she spat. I'm the high priestess of one of the most powerful sons of the Sky Mother. I already told you I didn't kill her. This continued harassment will only come down worse on you when Estros returns. I got to my feet and shrank my oak back down to a manageable size. See, I don't think it will. I walked back to her desk and picked up a copy of the Nexos Chronicler. Good old Andy. 
I wouldn't have caught her slip-up if not for him. I read aloud from a few choice lines. The victim, a 21-year-old chemistry student at Nexos University, was found transmogrified into a seabird in the early hours of Monday morning. Chemistry, physics, engineering, it's all the same mumbo-jumbo to a high priestess, isn't it? Mother Daphne turned white. I'm no Estrian expert, but how would the wind god feel if he found out you were the one who leaked his scandal to the press? I think I can answer that, the seagull in the rafters said in a surprising basso profundo voice. Fluttering down from on high, he landed with a gust of freezing wind so piercing I had to shut my eyes. When I opened them again, Estros stood before me in the form of a furious, one-armed man with a wind-tossed black beard. It feels pretty damn shitty. Windfather, the high priestess stood up, only to collapse right back onto her knees in groveling obeisance. I... I had no idea you'd returned. Yes, that was rather the point. When the cat's away, the mice will play. Isn't that how the expression goes? And you've been playing a dangerous game. I was only thinking of you. Mother Daphne wrung her hands and her bravado burned away like wisps of fog, leaving behind a distracted and lost woman. You were gone, and uh, I didn't know what to do, so I thought I thought if the temple came under attack, you'd have to come back and defend yourself, and then everyone would know that you didn't do those awful things they accused you of. You have to believe me, everything I do is in the service of your holy name. Estros snorted, and a breeze redolent with the scent of horseshit whipped through the room for a brief moment. Your little trick has done naught but blacken my name. And it's hampered this case, I couldn't help but add. It was a little hard to focus in Estros's presence. The shifting air currents in the room plucked at my clothing and hair like grasping fingers. Wouldn't finding Pippa's killer have served Estros better? Mother Daphne's mouth curved into a sneer. She was no true follower. I knew something was up the moment she came to live with us, keeping to herself, ignoring our rituals. And my lord, if you will pardon a humble mortal's presumption, you never shared so much as a moment alone with her. So, a few months ago, I had her followed. That connected two more dots. With a nymph from the Garden of Delight. She lit up at my admission. Then you know what she was. A traitor. A thief. She went over to her desk and seized a handful of photos from a drawer. Clutching them in her hand, she crawled forward on her knees to snatch at the cuffs of Estros's robes. I found out the truth, my lord, that you, in your compassion and thoughtfulness, tried to hide from us. She and her brother were blackmailing you after everything you did for her. That ungrateful little bitch dared to hold herself above your glory. An impatient burst of air sent the photos scattering. Ungrateful. So when did the plan change? Every word felt like a burning coal passing my lips. Ungrateful. It didn't. 
With the flame of her anger spent, the priestess sagged to the floor. I swear it on my life. I swear it on you, Windfather. I only hired the nymph to collect evidence to free you from that girl's vicious wiles. But when I saw Sisera slipping into the temple in the security footage from that night, I panicked, thought she'd taken my instructions too far. So where is the footage? I asked. I destroyed it, she whispered. But I don't think she killed the girl. Or at least, not alone. That transmogrification spell would have been beyond anything a banished nymph could do. So I didn't think it would make a difference. She pressed her forehead to the ground, her voice squeaky and pleading. Please forgive me, Windfather, your most lowly and misbegotten servant. I glory in your every breeze. I delight in your every gesture. Please understand that my heart is true. I can't stand groveling, the god groused. He raised his hand above the priestess's prone form. I'll give you a few months as an albatross, and we'll never speak of this again. I cut in as the priestess started to snivel. Pardon me, Estros Windfather, but given the recent negative press, would turning her into a seabird achieve the, er, most desired outcome? What? As if for the first time, Estros noticed the newspaper spread across Mother Daphne's desk with its offending headline. Oh, right. Let's make it a vow of silence then, shall we? The priestess nodded, fleeing from the room without a backward glance, leaving me alone with the Lord of Breezes. I bowed from the waist. I'm Iris Tharo, servant of Estros Huft. Unimportant. We're wasting time, Justix Tharo. We need to talk. This episode of Epic is brought to you by Wildgrain. I want you to take a moment and imagine the smell of fresh-baked sourdough bread filling your house. Or maybe it's croissants, if that's more to your liking. Now, what if I told you that you could get this delicious experience without covering yourself in flour and without leaving your house? Well, you can if you order from Wildgrain. What's Wildgrain? Well, it is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box. You get sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and pastries that go from your freezer to your oven and ready to serve in 25 minutes or less. I just got my first box and it had three different sourdough loaves, biscuits, croissants, and two different kinds of pasta. I made the orange cranberry biscuits right away and I cannot tell you how wonderful my house smelled and they tasted even better. Scallops and Wild Grains Fresh Fettuccine is on the menu for this week, and I plan to pair it with the olive oil ciabatta loaf. <sighs> Doesn't that sound so good? If you're a carb lover like me, and you want good carbs, free of preservatives and artificial colors and flavors, then you'll want to get a subscription right away. And now you can fully customize your Wild Grain box, so you can choose any combination of breads, pastas, and pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com epic to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com epic. 
That's wildgrain.com slash E-P-I-C. Or you can use promo code EPIC at checkout. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Andy. I went straight from Iris's apartment to the nearest bar. A little classier than my usual haunts, but it still had a pool table and people willing to be hustled out of a few bills. I swung through the motions like a practiced dancer. I don't get to play too often. The old lady doesn't like it. A wager? Oh, sure, twist my arm. Eight ball in the corner pocket? Wow, this must be my lucky night. Lying came second nature to me. A matter of routine. A set of familiar rhythms that set my mind at ease. It came with being a demi, a child of two worlds, and forced to play the part of both. I'd tried to go straight. I'd tried to step out of the groove I'd worn for myself out of years of con jobs and scams. Look where it had gotten me. Whoever had destroyed Pippa had managed to do so only because I'd been too slow to do it first. As the last tipsy businessman grumbled and slapped his money into my hand, I thought of Iris. I knew what she would do in this situation. The same thing she always did. Jump in head first. Head straight to the source. Ask the tough questions first, like the tough questions I had for the Marwals. I stuffed the money into my pocket. Hustling was what I was good at, but these days, it bored the hells out of me. Why continue doing the same stupid thing when I could change and try an entirely new stupid thing? What the hell, right? I was already bound for Surf World when this case was over. I replaced my pool cue on the rack and asked the bartender to call me a cab. Twenty minutes later, the driver dropped me off at Elyria Ridge, the upscale suburb the Marwalls hailed from. It was coming up on 3 a.m., and ornate street lamps spilled golden light across landscaped yards and wrought iron fences clogged with climbing roses. You didn't hear too many stories of first-generation outlanders making it into neighborhoods like this or even second-generation outlanders. Old suspicions died hard, but the mall walls were lucky, or maybe more than lucky. I arrived to find the mall wall's garage door gaping open, their SUV missing. A single child's shoe lay in the driveway, laces askew. Unease shivered through me, and I ran for the front door. It swung open at my touch. Two steps into the house, my shoe crunched on shards of broken pottery strewn across the floor. I almost called out, but my voice got stuck somewhere in the back of my throat. 
I fumbled for the nearest light switch. The kitchen had been ransacked, every cupboard and drawer thrown open. Brine rippled across the floor from a shattered jar of pickles. Crossing into the living room, I stumbled over a pile of overturned couch cushions and nearly face-planted through a glass coffee table. Shit. The fear of failure reached up and seized me by the throat. I'd come too late. I reached for my phone. I needed to call Iris. My thumb hovered over the screen. What had Iris told me last night? Look at it like an investigator. I took a deep breath. She was right. I was still in survival mode, making it all about me. Think like an investigator. I'd last met the Marwalls four days ago at a cafe in town. After three attempts to catch their daughter at one of her favorite spots had failed. Four days ago, Mr. Marwall had shoved a wad of Dalma bills into my jacket pocket and told me to reach out to his daughter at the temple itself. I remembered the sweat on his forehead, at his armpits, soaking dark circles into the sleeves of his shirt. This is your last chance, he'd told me. My last chance or theirs? Another question. Did they leave willingly? As my anxiety cleared, so did my mind. On the second floor, the children's wardrobes stood open. The floor littered with mismatched socks and scattered hangers. I stepped into the master bedroom. The carpet was covered with broken chunks of stone and plaster, and a massive section of the wall had been torn down, exposing timber and insulation. I guessed this to be the location of the family shrine, or rather, the former location. I sifted through some of the stone pieces, but the statuary honoring the Mall Wall's patron deity had been smashed beyond all recognition. No way of knowing who they worshipped. You can't get rid of the Pantheon that way, I thought, with a pang of empathy. A picture of the Mall Wall's final night in this house started to coalesce in my mind. The house was cleaned out, but apart from a few dishes, an unlucky jar of pickles, and the family shrine, nothing had been broken or senselessly smashed. Clothes had been taken, food. Jewelry too, it looked like, save for a few amethyst earrings and a coral pendant abandoned on the floor. Think like an investigator. What's the story here? The Mawwals had a nice house. They lived in a nice neighborhood, and they worshipped a nice god until that god demanded their daughter in exchange. But Pippa had said no. I picked a shredded copy of the Nexos Chronicler out of the bathroom wastebasket. Now she was dead. And now they were gone. All of them. Little Phoebe Morwall, too. Had the family photo been an empty threat from the start? Or had they finally balked at having two dead daughters? I took my phone out as I came down the stairs. It was time to call Iris. I froze at the sound of footsteps coming up the walk. Mama? The voice rose in panic. Mama? Lloyd? Phoebe? Anyone? I shifted, and the stairs creaked. Footsteps came racing around the corner, and I found myself face to face with a scrawny, strangely familiar teenager sporting an unfortunate mustache. Who the fuck are you? He demanded. Huh. I was about to ask you the same thing. You think you're funny? The kid reached into his messenger bag and whipped out a strange carved object. 
feel like making a joke now? Even while he was pointing the Kestrel relic straight at my chest, it took me a solid three seconds before I recognized him. To be fair, I'd only seen the chicken-faced boy in passing as he raced out of Mama's cooking. Put your hands up! Now! I obeyed, slowly, to show him I didn't have a weapon of my own. It's cool. We can be cool. Shut up! Only now did the kid seem to recognize the condition the rest of the house was in. What the hell? Where's my family? What did you do to them? Family? They flew the coop. I'm surprised you missed it. But I bet Partridge keeps you two in an irregular schedule. The kid jumped at the mention of the relic dealer's name. His arm wavered. How the hell do you know about that? Who do you work for? I know it's hard to believe, but I think we're on the same side. Slow and steady, I reached for the relic clenched in his shaking hand. He took a step back, reinforcing his grip on the Kestrel figurine. You're right! That is hard to believe! The kid pressed something at the relic's base, and the bird's beak started to glow. Wait! I'm sorry about all this, but I can't have you following me! Time seemed to slow around us, and with a bright flash of light, the relic detonated. Gods and Lies is created and written by Elizabeth Vale, starring Carrie Height and Sarah Mallow Christensen. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music are by Amanda Rose Smith. Cover art by Lisa Starl. Gods and Lies is created and written by Elizabeth Vale, starring Carrie Height and Sarah Mallow Christensen. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music are by Amanda Rose Smith. Cover art by Heather Mason. You're listening to Epic, Gods and Lies. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Epic is produced by Nicole Kreuter and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Devin Shepard. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Hosted by Faith McQuinn. Audio editing and original theme by Sam Bagala. Original cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Epic by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>